9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am in New York City in Washington, D.C. We have uh, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have David Sanger of the New York Times. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And in London, England, we have Corey Shockey. <laughs> See? There she is. That's like our that's like our sort of lead-in music is Corey's laugh. Everybody's like, wait, I hear Corey's laugh. I must come to my podcast. And there we have Corey Shockey joining us. Um, I'd like to start with a story that David Sanger has been a trailblazer on. Um, And in fact, maybe the only person here who's interested in it. But I'm going to say that once he explains it to you, that will all change. David, talk to us a little bit about Huawei. Huawei. Funny that you should mention that. Um, Well, you made me. You made me mention it. You said mention it. I made. And I'm like, okay, if you said so. Right. There's a lot of people who are reading your article. Right. So we published a big story in the Sunday. Uh, uh, New York Times, that tried to ask the question, two questions. One, is the American preoccupation with Huawei justified, or are we creating here sort of a second red scare? And the second question is, if it is justified, what is it that the United States is doing to keep Huawei and other Chinese manufacturers from wiring the West? And um, on the first question, It's very hard to find right now examples in which Huawei, which is the world's second largest provider of cell phones, one of the largest providers of network equipment, a company that sort of came up from nothing 20 years ago, wiring up rural China to a point today where its revenues are twice the size of Cisco Systems, whose designs they stole, and significantly bigger than IBM in revenue. Uh, So they're a big company. And they're getting out around Europe, Canada, uh, Africa, Latin America, and basically saying, we will underbid everybody else for the creation of the new 5G networks. And so the the big issue is, have they done much to indicate that uh, they are actually uh, using the network technology to go listen in, cut off uh, traffic, redirect traffic? And secondly, should we be worried about the 5G? On the first, the evidence is very scarce. We have a few cases where Huawei uh, officers have been arrested for on spying charges, including in Poland recently. Um, but we don't have many cases, any cases, in which you can actually catch Huawei um, diverting traffic or listening in on traffic. On the second question, it's a lot harder because the 5G network is more than just something that will make your cell phone run faster, more than something that will just get rid of the latency when you call up a website and you're on Wi-Fi. It's actually a remaking of the Internet to fit the Internet of Things. And when that moment comes, if a Chinese firm has the network infrastructure 
and the Chinese government goes to it and says, we need you to do X, it's pretty clear from Chinese law they need to comply. And that scared the hell out of a lot of people in the Trump administration, but also in Britain, in France, in Germany, throughout Europe, throughout places that rely on these networks. Ed, are you persuaded that this is an important story for us to watch? Um, and how do you think a story like this resonates in Washington, D.C. that doesn't terribly well understand these issues? Well, well, to be fair to Washington, D.C., you know, the, these aren't intuitively graspable issues. You know, we, we don't, you know, 5G, we understand 5G is the next step on from 4G, but we don't really understand the, the physics of it or the, the engineering of it. Um, uh, and we know that people like um, Cisco used to rule it. And, um, you know, with the help of reporting from people like David, that Huawei uh, are now the top um, the top provider of, of these routers and these connections and so forth. Um, so I can understand um, why people don't immediately grasp it. But I would say that Huawei has been in the crosshairs of Washington um, for quite some time now. Washington's been ahead of most other countries um, in worrying about, um, you know, it, it, it being in the, the pocket of the PLA. Um, I think in David's story in the Times on Sunday, it mentioned, correct me if I'm wrong, David, that Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary, was in Washington last week. And one of the main sort of questions he wanted to ask was about Huawei, because Britain, of course, is also building a 5G network, and Huawei's also got contracts in, in Britain. So I think it is something we should all be concerned about. I myself don't pretend to have any great knowledge, so I would defer to David um, on, on what looked like very good reporting. You know, Britain is a really interesting example, because Huawei moved in early, uh, employed a lot of people, and to this day employs a lot of Britons. The GCHQ, which is Britain's equivalent of the National Security Agency, is pretty uniform that Huawei should not be in their systems, particularly for 5G. And when Jeremy Hunt came here for his visit the other day, it was just a one-day visit, it's interesting. His first meeting was not with the Secretary of State, not at the White House. It was with uh, General Nakasone, uh, the head of the NSA. And I think that tells you a lot. Um, to the degree that uh, Britain can think about anything other than Brexit, and it can't right now, it's really stuck between uh, the, the demands of its intelligence agencies and people who are saying, look, if you ban Huawei, you are probably condemning a lot of other future deals with China, and you're probably going to put a lot of people out of work. What I was about to say, David, the fact that Britain's Foreign Secretary, in between May, Theresa May's two fatal, all preoccupying votes on Britain's Europe or not European future, has time to come over here and see Nakasone to ask this question about Huawei does underline what an important question it is. But doesn't it worry you, Rosa, that if the policymakers in DC don't understand this, and the only person who does that is David Sanger, that David Sanger <laughs> will become our supreme leader and and rule this era? David, I that, think the that's chances the outcome of that we should well. all hope for. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I'm I would be delighted to have David Sanger as our as our supreme leader, and I, I welcome him. I, I thought the direction you were going in, David, uh, 
when you said, does it worry you that nobody in Washington understands this issue? At first, I, you know, I thought, well, how is that different from any other issue, which people in Washington don't understand, which is 98 percent of the issues that we face? Um, You know, I, I actually think that as David knows very well, since he he writes a lot about some of these cyber issues and and sort of high tech challenges, um, I think it's a, a a huge Washington problem in this area in particular. Though that you know we don't know much about much, but we really don't know anything about this. But we think we do. Um, that that it, it, it's understanding what's at stake requires not only having a fairly sophisticated understanding of global trade policy, U.S.-China relations, but it also requires having a fairly sophisticated understanding of the technologies and and what they can do and what they're likely to be able to do. And there are very, very, very few people, uh, David probably being one of that handful of people who, who do understand it. So, But instead, unfortunately, David is not yet the supreme leader. And instead, we just have a bunch of bozos uh, who think they know stuff making decisions. Wow. Well, that's a strong vote for David as Supreme Leader. Corey, do you have an opinion on this? (laughs) I think Corey's going to have a differing opinion. (laughs) Uh, The prospect of David Sanger as our Supreme Leader makes me want to encourage the advancement of our robot overlords. Wow. Ooh, Corey. I am, of course, kidding. Right. We would all prosper under David's leadership. Right. Yeah. Of course, he Corey has already left. moved uh, has already moved to England. Left the country. So, yes. <laughs> I preemptively moved out of the country scrap. In fact, I'm very quickly uh, scrolling through trying to find a country that doesn't have an extradition treaty with the United States so that when he is our supreme leader, I can't be bounced back. Um, well, that's an, that's an excellent in, point. On in early, truth, David yes. is one of the only people who genuinely understands the technical issues and their national security salience. There are a lot of people who understand the technical issues. There are a lot of people who get the national security salience of what the Chinese are trying to do with uh, not just with 5G, but with a, a digital Silk Road, how that connects to the Belt and Road Initiative, how that connect anyway. Very few people understand both aspects of it. And David's book is genuinely magnificent in explaining both of those things in a way that doesn't have me making the resigned, exasperated expression when the IT folks come into my office and try and tell me how they're fixing my computer instead of just fixing my computer. David can explain it in a way that gives all of us a little bit of traction on this problem. And and better public awareness, better government awareness, really is the fundamental start of better policies on this. Uh, hmm. uh, well, that's, I think, a, a strong endorsement. But, you know, you at one point in an earlier podcast, as we were predicting what would happen during the year, um, right after you said the most meaningful political debate would be between Tommy Lauren and Cardi B, which was an uncanny <laughs> prediction. Un- I am. My sister can testify that I don't know enough contemporary culture to have made that. <laughs> right. But, 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 but beyond that, you projected that the United States and China 
might actually uh, run afoul of one another in the South China Sea in a more violent way. And I'm just wondering about the context of all of this. You know, we're we're busy. We look at Venezuela. We look at the Middle East. We look at this, you know, uh, 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 Russiagate. But the U.S.-China relationship is getting more and more fraught in a variety of different ways. Uh, clearly, there's a trade issue. Um, uh, technology transfer is getting more fraught. Even as we're recording this, which we do on a Monday, sorry to spoil the surprise of this, uh, a story crosses the wires saying that the U.S. is about to announce criminal charges related to China's Huawei. Um, and those criminal charges, of course, uh, 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 pertain to uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou, who is the chief financial officer, uh, who was arrested in Canada, which led then the, the Chinese to arrest some Canadians. And, and there are tensions growing in some material ways. And I'm just wondering, you know, are, are, is, is this something we ought to be paying more uh, attention to than we have been? And I'm going to go Corey, and then we'll go to Ed. So I think, uh, yes, the situation is becoming more brittle because China mistakenly believes that Chinese Americans uh, uh, and and the diaspora of China, Chinese who are other countries' citizens, are somehow bear continued responsibility to work for the for the Chinese Communist Party leadership. So the likelihood of of error grows on the South China Sea, on the hostage-taking. The hostage-taking also makes it a lot more brittle and makes misunderstanding more likely because we're not going to let researchers go to China. Anybody who has a responsibility of care for analytic staff is going to be deeply anxious about the possibility of risking them in China because the Chinese make no distinction between people who have committed actual crimes and people who might be useful hostages to try and spring free Chinese who have been legally charged uh, in other countries. So yeah, you know, I think Corey, it's getting more brittle. Corey makes a really interesting point that goes to why people are so worried about Huawei. It's the absence of legal process in China. So if you look at how the Chinese law is written, it just says if the Chinese government comes to a company and says, you must help us on an intelligence problem, or something like that. It's not like it goes to an independent court that determines whether or not they can get the equivalent of what here in the United States would be a FISA warrant. Um, so the big fear about Huawei, created by a former member of the PLA, is that when they get these, they just go along with them. And when the founder of Huawei came out and finally spoke to the press about two weeks ago, he said, I'm a very patriotic uh, Chinese citizen. I want to do what's good for my government, but I also want to do what's good for my customers, which answered nothing. Um, uh, Ed, are you still with us? I am indeed. Uh, all right. So, you know, you lead a very glamorous life, as we've often discussed in your <laughs> cocktail parties. In the last episode, we discussed you going uh, to a restaurant in New York that was not 21 um, uh, with uh, Roger Stone. I read it between episodes so that I would get up to speed on that. Uh, he sounds pretty odious. But you go to all these things. How often does China come up compared to, say, Russiagate, the Middle East, you know, and so on? 
Uh, a lot, a lot more than it than it used to. Um, sorry, I keep thinking um, uh, with your dog barking that the FBI are in, are in fact amassing outside your door as we speak. Um, the, a lot more than than I used to. I mean, I had uh, um, I had a long conversation the other day with the um, the head of Germany's Green Party, um, and the Green Party, you know, uh, didn't used to um, have much of a foreign policy. You know, they were more of a protest party. But recent electoral successes and the fact that they in the polls have overtaken the Social Democrats in Germany means they're starting to think like a governing party. And so they're putting uh, all kinds of foreign policy motions to their members um, uh, and debating what their what their geopolitics as a party should be. And on Russia, um, they get like 1,250 amendments every time they suggest a policy. It just divides the party down the middle. But they recently put a fairly robust proposition um, to, to the Green Party, German Green Party members on China, that Germany should scrutinize Chinese investments, that it should push back aggressively against Chinese technological um, uh, encroachment on the German economy, uh, and that it should pay heed to the geopolitical implications of the, uh, the Eurasian end of the Belt Road um, initiative, and it passed unanimously. Um, that's just sort of new. Um, and, and so it's not just here in, in the United States that China is you know, commanding a lot more attention, and certainly not just amongst Trumpian circles. It's across the West. China uh, is a bigger issue um, and uh, is considered more potentially menacing geopolitically, uh, I think, since the 19th Party Congress, since Xi Jinping, you know, made himself the eternal lifelong leader and, and elevated himself into the immortals um, by enshrining his thought in the Chinese Communist Party constitution. I think it's really in the last two years, but particularly the last 18 months, um, China has become a lot, lot more, has, has, has been thrust a lot more to the forefront of people's minds. And I, and I sort of picked that up anecdotally um, the whole time. So th let's, let's go to a question, Rosa. Others can weigh in on this kind of thing, just sort of as a brief public service announcement here. As people go into the field that we are all in, and I talk to students, the two things I always say to them are learn about technology and learn about China. But when you know you're involved in a law school there, and many of those people are expecting to go on and into public service, how many of them actually are learning the things that they need to know in order to be able to deal with these issues in an informed way? What percentage of the Georgetown law class speaks Chinese or can code? Well, as a matter of fact, David, a fairly substantial percentage of the Georgetown law class is Chinese. Uh, as at many other universities, we have a pretty significant uh, population of Chinese students uh, here, both a very large group amongst our graduate students who are doing LLM degrees. Um, I think, uh, I don't know the precise number this year, but we have about 120 or so Chinese students doing graduate degrees, but we also have a growing number of Chinese students who are enrolling as JD students. Um, I think I think we're up to about 30 or so Chinese students in the entering JD class. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that that's actually kind of a complicated thing for 
Georgetown is as it is for many other U.S. universities. Among other things, there's some anxiety about becoming financially dependent on students from any particular country, uh, just because you know if the Chinese economy takes a dive, a steeper dive, I should say. Um, there is a possibility that that source of students and their tuition dollars dries up, leaving leaving schools in the lurch. But but it also raises it raises some complicated questions about how, you know how many students from any particular country are too many students. And in the case of China, there have been allegations uh, at at other universities that. Uh, the Chinese government is putting pressure on its students studying in the United States and elsewhere to, A, get them to toe the line and make sure that they don't speak out in a way that deviates from uh, the the perceived interests of the Chinese government, but also uh, uses them to put pressure on, on non-Chinese students and professors. Um, that's That's a you know, so I, I have really mixed feelings about this because, on the one hand, for all the reasons that you suggested, I think it's really, really good for American students uh, to be in classes with students from all other countries. And I think that, given the importance of China politically and economically, it's great for our U.S.-born law students to have classmates who are Chinese and be hearing from them and learning from them and getting to know them and hopefully becoming friends with them. Um, you know, so my my general pedagogical bias is it's all good, but but I, I do think China, you know, it creates some unique uh, issues given the apparent willingness of the Chinese government to sometimes to use some of its students as as political tools, often often not not uh, you know often semi coerced political tools. Um, I think it raises a host of, of ethical and other issues for us. And when it comes to tech, uh, you know, I, I think we're still behind the curve, as are most American institutions, but we now offer courses like coding for lawyers for exactly the reasons you said, but we still have a pretty long way to go. Hey, David, can I just weigh in for a moment on sort of where the status of public education is on this? So I'm not that worried about the students. Uh, I mean, I find with my own students, and that sounds like with Rose's, and I suspect we'd hear the same thing from Corey. Um, they've grown up in a digital age. They understand the threats about all of this. I find that when I go and talk in Cong to people who are in Congress, apart from a half dozen people who deal with this a lot on the um, intelligence committees, some on armed services, certainly on some of those who deal with the telecoms, that there's a really hard time integrating the technical issues in cyber in general with the policy issues. And not enough of a recognition that we are in a new kind of arms race, that in the end, whether your networks are connected to the Internet of Things is going to be a greater vulnerability than the number of bomb shelters that you have. And uh, I, what you sort of want to do when you hear politicians say, oh, this is so complicated when I'm dealing with this kind of thing, I go and I ask my 14-year-old daughter who, you know, understands coding. Um, you sort of want to shake people and say, if this was the Cold War, in the middle of the Cold War, would it have been acceptable for American politicians to say, oh, this nuclear stuff is so complicated 
you need to understand nuclear physics in order to be able to do the policy. Well, first of all, you don't, but you need to know a little bit about it, but you don't need to be an expert in it. But secondly, that would not have been a politically acceptable answer. And yet, because all of us are somewhat confounded by our computers, I was just today, um, it's somehow a laugh line in, that's acceptable in the political world to say, how could you possibly expect me to grapple with all this stuff? Well, yeah, that's clearly troubling since we are making policy decisions now that will have consequences for us, both in a security sense and economic sense, in a social sense, in a in a having affecting everything from uh, labor policy to tax policy to monetary policy, um, uh, and and the. We make decisions that are going to affect us for 20 years with a cadre of people who don't have the slightest idea what they are talking about. And we're going about. to be making those decisions in the next few months. One of the things that we stressed in the story that ran the Times on Sunday is that over the next six months, most of the countries in Europe, some in Asia, many elsewhere, are going to be making the fundamental decisions about who's building their 5G networks. And once that decision is made... It's going to be hard to unmake it for the next few decades. May I ask that everybody have a moment of appreciation for the University of California at Berkeley, which is ripping out all of its IT hardware to make sure there are no Chinese components in it? <laughs> Good luck with that is all I can say. I mean, you know, you're not going to live in a world where there are no Chinese components in it. And you're not going to live in a world where you aren't connecting into Chinese networks. We can't delude ourselves here. You know, people, it turns out, message all around the world. Huawei is going to own half the world's networks and we're going to need to connect into them. Well, and I think that's the point. If, if they're owning half the world's networks... You know, traffic's going to go through them one way or another. They know that, and this is continuing. At, at, at your redoubt there in London, Corey, you guys must be tackling these kind of issues. It's, it's, it seems to me, you know, there's a little bit more sophistication among Europeans on these things than there is among American policymakers. Am I misguided in that regard? Yeah, you are largely misguided in that regard. Oh, thank you for adding in that regard, by the way, but continue. <laughs> um, I think there is greater appreciation now than there was even a year ago for the EU Privacy Directive. But that's not the kind of um, problem we have been talking about. That's Facebook as a as a digital predator um, and people not understanding the terms on which, you know, if you're not paying for it, you are the product. Uh, but I do, but I do not believe there is a much deeper, richer appreciation for the kind of structural risks that David talks about in his book and that we were just talking about, about Huawei. Um, the, I, I think there is a growing appreciation for the predatory nature of Chinese companies and the indistinguishability of ostensibly private com companies like Huawei and the government, and in particular the government intelligence apparatus. Um, so, so people are getting 
a steep education very fast because, as David says, they're having to make big infrastructure decisions that are going to either build in vulnerabilities or buy a little time while we continue to figure out this problem. Uh, so I wouldn't say that they're way out ahead of this. They have the same problem in most European countries that we have in the United States, which is that the tech community tends to be uh, libertarian. And, and so, for example, will strike poses of moral virtue about refusing to work for the Pentagon, but will work on the Chinese facial recognition um, software that is a major tool of domestic state repression in China. So, again, I think we're in the midstream of figuring this all out, but we are figuring it out in the messy, loud ways free societies do. Uh, yeah, we, we well, we are, and hopefully we will figure this out a little bit more. Another story that's gotten quite a bit of attention recently in the news, um, uh, which is related to what's happened in Syria, uh, Rosa, is there seem to be moves afoot to sort of wrap things up in Afghanistan. Uh, the president has said that that's what his objective is. Uh, there have been a number of uh, initiatives there, uh, despite you know some setbacks uh, in the country. Uh, but it, it, it looks like one of Trump's goals is to get out of there before the end of the first term. Uh, so that he can say he ended these endless wars. And I'm wondering what your take is on that. Yeah, I have I have really mixed feelings there as well. I, I think obviously uh, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan has not been a success. Uh, after 17 years of war, it's uh, the Taliban controls more territory than at any point uh, since shortly after the U.S. invaded in the fall of 2001. Um, so it's a little hard to, to view this as a uh, major, major strategic victory. Um, that being said, um, I, you know, it, it I, I worry about the long-term impact on the Afghan people of some kind of deal cut between the U.S. and the Taliban. The Taliban is this, you know, it's not a not a not a group of nice people, particularly when it comes to women's rights and the fear, you know, the fear all along of negotiations with the Taliban. You know, one of the fears, I should say, has been that uh, if the U.S. withdraws its forces, whatever minimal protection there is now for human rights, particularly for women's rights in Afghanistan, will will be gone. Um, and that the U.S. will will get to withdraw and there will be peace, so-called, at the expense of half the population of Afghanistan. I, I, I think the, the other reason to be skeptical and concerned is that at the moment, these are negotiations that are between the U.S. and the Taliban, but they do not include the the problematic but nonetheless uh, elected government of Afghanistan itself, the, the uh, government of uh, President Ashraf Ghani. Um, the Taliban is refusing to negotiate with, with uh, the Afghan government on the grounds that they're just a bunch of foreign puppets. Um, but 
you know, I, I worry that in its in our unseemly haste to get the hell out of there, that we may be about to cut some deals that will sacrifice not only Afghan women, but indeed in the long term end up end up uh, dooming any real chance of stability. I don't that that all that said. You know, the the obvious rejoinder to my concerns would be, well, you got a better idea uh, to which the answer is no, I don't. So so it may be that that this is the best we can do. Can I loop in here? I hope Corey has a better idea. But sure. Well, let's 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 go to Corey first. I I know she was drawn to what you were saying by your use of the word unseemly, which (laughs) sent her hurtling back to her comfort zone. Actually, it just made her think about the two Davids. I I rearranged my bustled skirts on the fainting couch. (laughs) I agree with Rosa. It's deeply unsatisfying to be buying time in Afghanistan. Um, and yet, um, I, I really do genuinely worry about us just turning around and walking away. Uh, the statistic that struck me hardest recently on Afghanistan is that 45,000 Afghan security forces have been killed in the last which, few years. Which is an unbelievable number. Since we start, since the United States stepped back from a combat role and moved to advise and assist the Afghans, first of all, that people are still volunteering for the Afghan National Security Forces with casualties that high is amazing and a really beautiful statement about their desire to have a safe, stable country. The second thing is that's a measure of the degree of difficulty that they are facing in handling this problem, even with our support and assistance. And so I'm in favor of negotiations with the Taliban. I'm even though it's obvious that time is is slipping through the hourglass for us, finding ways to help the Afghans continue to hold the progress that they have made would be a really beautiful gift. And doing it at a low cost when they are paying such a high cost seems to me a good investment, even though I realize it claws at my heartstrings um, that I don't have a better answer. David, you wanted to... Sure, yeah. I was struck uh, in the discussion of uh, Afghanistan by the comparisons, um, some of which you've heard from uh, former diplomats who have, you know, worked in the region and been through there for a long time, um, to the uh, peace accord for Vietnam that was uh, reached also on this month, but back in the early 70s. That was the Nixon-Kissinger peace agreement that sought the the decent interval, as as, uh, the book was later known as, um, or later called. And the comparison is this. As in Vietnam, we're caught here in the middle of the Civil War. As in the Vietnam case, we've gotten tired of being there and know we need to get out. As in the Vietnam case, the president's made it pretty clear we've got to get out. This president just wanting to get out, Nixon, of course, escalating to de-escalate, right? And the other side, sensing all of this, 
seize a moment to basically get an agreement, have us leave over a two-year period, and then be able to go deal with the Afghan government as they want to, which is to say either to participate with it or to attack it. And I think, you know, we've been in this war now for 17, nearly 18 years. Um, if we were going to win, we would have won by now. We're not going to. And uh, so I think the, the question now is, are we finding a way out that is likely to be sustainable, or are we just finding a way out? And that's what I'm still trying to figure out about this agreement, because the Taliban themselves aren't of one mind on this. And, and the assurances that you hear from the, these Taliban negotiators may not apply 18 months from now. Well, indeed, Rosa, there's an article uh, the, uh, this week in Vox, uh, which uh, experienced U.S. military leader, says doesn't matter what we agree with the Taliban. The Taliban are going to wait for us to go, and then they're going to do whatever they want to do. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's truth to that, you know, and and I, we, I, I mean, I think there are different ways to look at this, right? Um, we've had troops uh, in in Korea, obviously, for decades, um, and with the exception of Donald Trump, who would be perfectly happy to just randomly pull them out, um, as far as I can tell. Uh, most of us don't consider that to be a problem. Uh, we've had U.S. troops stationed in, in Germany for many, many decades, and most of us don't consider that to be a crisis. So, you know, the, the, realistically, the alternative uh, to pulling out is accepting that the, regional, that the price of regional stability, um, that the price of having a presence on the border of Pakistan, which strategically is a much potentially much greater problem for us than than Afghanistan is, given that it has nuclear weapons. Um, the price of protecting at some bare bones level uh, human rights in Afghanistan is that we have U.S. troops there for the next few decades. And, and best case, every now and then, a handful of them are going to get killed and it will cost us a lot of money to do it. And maybe we think that's the right thing to do. Maybe that maybe that is worth it. But I don't, you know, or maybe we just think, sorry, it costs too much. We have too many other problems. Uh, bring them home. Too bad for the Afghans. Too bad about Pakistan. Nothing we can do. Um, I don't think that we have yet as a nation sort of had that debate in, a, in an honest way. Um, you know, what is it worth to us to not abandon the Afghans to the Taliban, who after we leave will surely do whatever they want. What is it worth to us to have uh, troops nearby in case things go haywire in Pakistan? Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't think we we are so messed up in so many ways in terms of uh, what's going on in Washington right now that we are very, very far away from having that discussion in the serious way that we ought to be having it. Okay, we've got three, four minutes here. We've managed to go through a whole episode, thankfully, without discussing our president or his legal problems. And I want to continue with that. Yay! But, yay! But, but uh, we have had some domestic developments that are worth talking about. Uh, at, uh, Senator Kamala Harris announced that she was running for president. Uh, she's raised a lot of money really quickly. She had a very big crowd. Um, uh, she's a very appealing candidate. Um, I personally find her a very appealing candidate. 
Um, but she, like almost all the other candidates who are in the race so far, have no foreign policy experience again. Um, and uh, I just thought you might want to comment on her candidacy, the purported candidacy of uh, Starbucks uh, uh, chairman uh, Howard Schultz, um, uh, and you know the, the, how this is all unfolding. Let me start with you, Corey. Uh, well, uh, I did not watch Kamala Harris's announcement. I saw a big, pretty picture of beautiful Oakland, California, nearby my hometown, uh, but I haven't tuned into it, to be honest. It looks to me like the Dems are going to have a great big field, and I hope that portends better for them than it did for my Republicans last round. I, I think foreign policy experience is, um, is valuable, but I, I'm not sure it is the most valuable thing in a president at this moment. I am yearning for a little boring competence. And I would take it in virtually any aspect of doing the job after what we have been through in the Trump presidency. So so I'm not setting the standard so high as uh, having somebody have across the board experience. I would settle for judiciousness, a little uninteresting competence to set us forward. And I think we're going to have a whole bunch of gyrations on this. I very much hope and would enthusiastically work for any Republican candidate who will primary a sitting Republican president, because I do think the advantages of candidates working within a party structure are enormous. And I do worry about third party candidates uh, delivering success to Donald Trump. And and that would be genuinely tragic for the country. Uh, David, do you want to weigh in on this? Yeah. So um, Kamala Harris uh, has the couple of great advantages. Um, first of all, a big generational change for the administration. Uh, a, uh, I think um, she's uh, of both Jamaican and Indian heritage. So she's going to be able to make a case uh, on uh, immigration that Donald Trump that would be in great contrast to Donald Trump. She doesn't have a lot of foreign policy experience, but neither have our last two uh, presidents that uh, have been elected, right? Um, and uh, so it's clear that voters do not necessarily think that is a um, uh, much of a prerequisite. There is a big foreign policy team in waiting uh, that is ready, I think, to step in pretty much whoever the the um, Democratic candidate is going to be. So they're going to get a lot of help. But it, frankly, if you look at the field right now, the only one who is in the field right now who I think you could say has truly deep years and years, decades of foreign policy experience is Joe Biden. And so if you want the foreign policy experience, you get it with the former um chairman of the Intelligence uh, and Foreign Affairs Committees, uh, but you uh, also get the baggage of having somebody 
from uh, a past administration and um, certainly not a generational change. So and somebody who's been wrong on so many of these issues along such a cross long period of time and that Sarah Palin fought to a standstill. That, that's that's uh, Corey's absolutely right. And um, uh, as usual, and that's the downside you, of having a lot of foreign policy experience, which is you have a long record that people are going to uh, go after. Um, I think the bigger decision that the Democrats are going to have to make is I think there's a part of the party. I know there's a part of the party that just sees this as the moment to to go back to far left, whether it is Bernie Sanders or somebody else who would pick up that mantle. I think by the time a general election came, that would um, probably neuter what what advantages they have right now for moderates who are willing to take a chance on Donald Trump and are now having second thoughts. And I think that's the bigger question that the party has to go answer, which is, is their candidate going to come from the left or from the middle? And uh, I think there are a lot on the left who think that Donald Trump will lose the election no matter what. And I think that's probably a very risky bet right now. Can I add one other thing, which is that one uh, possible advantage of a third party run from somebody whose sensibilities are basically democratic is that it may cause Democrats not to take that lurch left that David worries about because they may uh, believe that they can keep that independent candidate from getting votes by filling that space with Mike Bloomberg or somebody else who has a similar profile. Rosa? David? Well, I just thought you'd want to weigh in on this. I know you've had opinions on Biden in the past. Here's, <laughs> you know, and 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 on top of all of that, we've got this discussion of the left. And I don't want to be the one who says the left isn't what you think it is and things are shifting. But maybe you do. Um, I think things are shifting. But and but I think it is actually too early to know how that's going to sort of play out in either the Democratic primaries or the general election. Um, you know, I don't actually think it's up to, quote unquote, the Democratic Party to decide if it moves to the left. I think I think that's up to the voters, um, you know, that there is no Democratic Party at, at this point, frankly, you know that there is there is the Demo the 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 powers that be within the Democratic Party aren't very powerful powers that be anymore. Um, so I think it's so, so. Number one, I don't think it's sort of up to pundits or to Nancy Pelosi or to the DNC to make some kind of decision about whether to move the party to the left. I think the voters are going to decide that for them. Um, and I don't know what the heck the voters are going to decide because I don't think the voters know what the heck they're going to decide. I think the voters are you know, unhappy, distressed, angry, looking for change. But but how does that actually play out as we get closer to a real live election campaign with presumably Donald Trump still as the Republican uh, incumbent and candidate? Um, I have no idea. Uh, I, I, as I've said before, overall, I think it this is actually in the long run a good thing for the Democratic Party. Um, I think it's been stuck in this sort of Clinton-esque centrism for a very long time. Uh, I think that that has not done it a whole lot of good, uh, electorally speaking. And I think it's it's inhibited the development of creative approaches and ideas. Uh, so 
regardless of who ends up on top, uh, you know, come come early spring, mid-spring 2020, I think in the long run, this is the kind of shakeup that is going to be good for the health of the democratic discourse, not just the Democratic Party. I agree completely. And that, I think, is a good place to... Um, wrap up this episode where there is some concurrence here among us. I want to thank Ed Luce, who has departed off, uh, We, uh, but we'll be back. Uh, I want to thank Corey Shockey and David Sanger, and I want to thank Rosa Brooks. Uh, and I want to encourage everybody to listen to the other podcasts we've got this week, especially Washington for Beautiful People and uh, our National uh, Security Magazine show, where the conversation will be with uh, Representative Ted Lieu, who, by the way, has endorsed Kamala Harris and is one of the most thoughtful rising star Democrats in the House um, and influential. And, um, uh, and those, cyber savvy. And cyber savvy. He's a very, very um, uh, smart guy indeed. And uh, I would like to suggest that... Uh, Everybody go and read the other uh, stories we've got on our site and then go and sign up and become a member of Deep State Radio and get a mug, get a shirt, get something else. Uh, helped us uh, all grow. So do that. Come back soon. Listen to all the episodes. We'll all be back with you again next week on Deep State Radio. Thank you, guys. And we'll uh, uh, talk soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.